Welcome to another edition of the SSPX podcast and another time of Questions with Father with Father Paul Robinson from Holy Cross Seminary in Australia. This week, we will be discussing a question sent in by a listener regarding Father Robinson's book, The Realist Guide to Religion and Science. In the book, Father talks about whether or not the globe was entirely covered with water or whether it is an entire allegory. That is, it didn't really happen at all. We will dive into that. Also, we now have a phone number where you can call a question in. Just leave a voicemail, and it might be included on a future episode. If you'd like to do that, the number is 724-252-8426. Or, like usual, you can send in your questions via info at sspx.org, or you can leave a message on our Facebook page, and we will get it into the list of questions that Father Robinson and our other priests will be answering in the future. As always, this podcast is free to our listeners, but it does take a great amount of resources. That's why we haven't really been able to post quite as often. It takes time, it takes resources. So if you are willing to help, and if you have the means to do so, it would be greatly appreciated. Just go to sspx.gifts, make a donation to Angelus Press, and put a note in at checkout that this is for the podcast. If you don't have the means or the resources, that's fine it's still going to be free for you to listen to. But you can help by sharing the podcast, by subscribing to it on iTunes or Stitcher or Google, and you can tell your friends about it. Please help us in this apostolate to spread the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. And now, here's Father Robinson. We are here with another edition of Questions with Father, here on the SSPX podcast. Well, good morning, Father Robinson. How are you? Uh, Good morning, Andrew. Uh, Things are going well. Very good. Glad to hear. You know, Father, when when we first started this call and and before we started recording and and just now, I heard in the background a little bit uh, some of the birds. You must be outside. And uh, in the last episode as well, um, I heard some birds in the background. They must be really enjoying the spring weather, well, the fall weather for you in Australia. Yeah, it's it's amazing here in Australia. Uh, the birds are extremely vocal. I, I think the the birds in North America are are much more modest <laughs> than the birds in Australia. The birds in Australia make their presence known, um, especially the the cockatoos, uh, the sulfur crested cockatoos. But you've got other really big birds here that um, make a lot of noise. So um, you're definitely aware of, of the birds. Most people think of Australia as, as koalas and kangaroos. But if you live here on a regular basis, it's really the birds that stand out. Well, it's enjoyable to hear, Father. And well, we talked a few episodes ago about how Holy Cross Seminary is in sort of a rural area. And uh, that just shows how rural the area must be for you to have this uh, almost sounds like you're in a bird sanctuary or something when you're talking to me. Yeah, that, that's exactly the case. We, we're definitely uh, in the countryside, and because of that, we, we do um, hear the birds more than you would, say, in the city. But, it, but even when you go into Goulburn, you know, it's, it's a little town of 20,000 people, but uh, the birds are there as well, you know, and they're making themselves known. But I think here um, at the seminary, we're, it's, it's really neat. We're able to see uh, certain seasonal birds come in. Um, like some black cockatoos or um, what are called the eastern rosellas, 
um, and, and other other birds might come in at, at different seasons and then and then fade away at other times depending on whether they like the the rain or they like the the cold or the or the warmth. Uh, so it's they're, they're, like each season has its own uh, particular bird that, that might come in. So it's uh, it's really fascinating. It's 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 a fantastic part of of living here in Australia to see uh, the incredible bird life. Well, it's a wonderful environment, I'm sure, for the seminarians to be in, and birds kind of leads us into our first question, and that is, uh, well, Noah, he let out two birds after the flood, and, or is that too much of a stretch? <laughs> I gave it's it a, a segue. Shot. I think it works. Well, some segues are better than others, Father. Uh, anyway, the questioner wrote in via our Facebook page, and his question is, Father Robinson, in your book, The Realist Guide to Religion and Science, you speak about how it is unlikely that the biblical flood covered the entire globe. How do you reconcile that with scripture? And how do you reconcile that with uh, many modern Catholics who believe that the flood actually didn't happen at all? Well, Andrew, I think this is this is one of those cases where there's uh, more than two possibilities. The questioner brings up uh, the two extremes, which is the, the one extreme being the, the modernist saying that the flood is not historical. It basically didn't happen. And um, the other extreme is is saying that the the flood um, could only have covered the entire world. It had to be uh, geographically universal, um, taking a, a um, certain interpretation of the language of, of Scripture. Um, but there is a, a middle ground to this, and I, and I would say that Unfortunately, uh, this middle ground position, which is actually, in my mind, the Catholic position on this question, is not well known by Catholics. It's kind of been lost, um, kind of gurgled down the, the memory hole, as it were, um, with all the confusion with the uh, Vatican II and in the, in the aftermath. It's kind of similar to, to other questions that come up, uh, such as the Church's teaching on economics, a lot of people think there's only two possible positions on that, either uh, laissez-faire capitalism, where you just have utter uh, freedom in the market, or, or communism or socialism, where the government absolutely regulates everything, whereas the Catholic position is, is neither one of those. Uh, we, we, we don't advocate just complete and utter freedom in, in the market, um, and we don't advocate total government control. But but rather we, uh, you know, Leo the Thirteenth has clarified in Rerum Novarum that uh, the best economics is is the one that favors private ownership, and that would that would involve some government regulation, and would involve the free market as well. So so there is a a third position there uh, that a lot of people don't don't really know about because of who is dominating uh, the airwaves, as it were, or the or the the the, uh, the media? The people only get taught the the two positions, and I, I feel that it's the same thing with the question of uh, the relationship between the Bible and science. It, often, people only are only aware of two possible positions. Uh, the one is is that the Bible. Uh, it's basically mythology. It doesn't uh, teach truth. It's just something that's, that's made up to have a nice story, sort of like the Greeks and, and their gods. Uh, the Jews had their Yahweh, and they, they made up stories about him. That's, that's the one position. Or the, the, uh, the other side would be the fundamentalist Protestant position, where you have to take a, a strictly literal sense of the Bible on, on the questions of science, or else you would say that the, the Bible has fallen into error. But 
you know, there is a third position uh, that's different from those two positions. And, and as I say, I think that's the Catholic position. And that's one of the things that motivated me to to write the book was really to make Catholics more aware of the fact that there is a different position on on these questions, that it is the Catholic position, that it's much more balanced, and to try to bring that back into the discussion and make people see that, no, I, I don't have to choose one of these two options. I'm not bound to choose one of these two options. There is a third possibility. Oh, that's very interesting. And we've talked about this before in, in different avenues within our previous podcast, Father, and that is that you can't be too hardline one way or the other uh, when you're talking about Scripture, either uh, either on the purely literal side or on the, well, it's all allegory and you just have to read into it. Um, there are uh, comparisons that uh, don't literally add up. For instance, the number of elect being in heaven uh, at a certain number of thousands of souls, for instance. Uh, but you, Father, as the writer of this book, where do you draw the line? Where is your middle ground? If if we admit that there is a middle ground somewhere between absolutely literal and allegorical, where where do you put that middle ground? That seems a little bit of a, a question. Well, I, I think that's perhaps one of the most important questions to to ask on this whole um, topic is is where do we find the proper interpretation of the Bible? Who do we go to? Um, and it just pains me to see some Catholics who, um, normally speaking, are, are very mistrustful of Protestants and uh, all that, that Protestants say and do. Like you, typically, we, we would understand it's not good to turn on the radio station and listen to a Protestant preacher. But on, on the other hand, for some reason in this area, they, they, would, they would trust the Protestants. So they would go to the creationists, the Protestant creationists as they're called for questions of reconciling the Bible with science. We don't do that as Catholics. We don't go to the Protestants to teach us how to read the Bible. Uh, we go to the church, especially when I was, I think, as I mentioned on an, another podcast, when, when I was teaching Genesis here and also the Introduction to Scripture course, I really uh, wanted to know the church's mind on these questions. So I went to uh, the pre-Vatican II teaching, and what what I find is is uh, I, I could not find any of the Catholic uh, scripture manuals advocating uh, the Protestant fundamentalist position, and and that really taught me that it's really not a Catholic position. Besides the fact when I was in the seminary in Winona, yeah, Father James Peake uh, taught us the, the Catholic position there as well. So as I say, if we look at the authentic reaction of the church before the council to the advancement of science and in sort of reconciling the new findings of silence with scripture, we do not find the church saying that we must teach that the Bible is saying that the, that the flood was uh, geographically universal. We do not find the church saying that the Bible is teaching that the world is only 6,000 years old. And we definitely don't find the church saying that the earth is the center of the universe. So it is interesting, yes, that there is that history of being able to find a middle ground. Um, are there certain writers and theologians that you looked at, uh, perhaps from pre-Vatican II, uh, who did give you some insight into this? Yes, uh, Andrew, there, there definitely were. Uh, and as I say, I really couldn't find fundamentalist, the Protestant fundamentalist position. On the contrary, I found almost universally this middle position that I'm speaking about, uh, the position being that the flood was, was likely localized um, and it happened in the area that was populated by human beings. That part of the globe at the time was was occupied by human beings and 
it was that part that that flooded that that was the the likely interpretation that what, what the Bible wishes to express. So in my book, I have a table on page 278 wherein I just give four different authors presenting this position. To take an example, there's Father Gigo and his special introduction to the study of the Old Testament. He says, the teachings of physical and geological sciences have entirely done away with the conception of an actual flood, which would at any time since the creation of man have covered the entire globe. And then uh, even even greater authority on this question would be Father Vigarou. Uh, Father Fulcron Vigarou was actually the secretary of the Pontifical Biblical Commission under St. Pius X. So he had the complete trust of St. Pius X. He signed the documents, the great documents of the Pontifical Biblical Commission in the reign of St. Pius X. So if there's anyone that's uh, beyond the accusation of being a modernist, it's certainly Father Vigarou. But he has he put together a, a dictionary of the Bible. And in that, he says that many commentators and theologians of our day believe that the deluge of Noah should be restricted to the region of the earth, which was populated when the deluge happened. According to them, all humans besides Noah's family were covered in the waters. But the flood did not cover the whole earth nor destroy all the animals. The universality of the deluge is neither geographical nor zoological. It's only anthropological. So, um, as I say, that that was a position he's saying that that most commentators and theologians of our day advocate. He himself went on to say, that's my position. So so that was the the standard position. And it shows the wisdom of the church in treating this question of of reconciling the science with the Bible. Just a a quick follow up on that, Father. Uh, when you're talking about Father Vigarou and, and what he said, when he said that the flood was purely anthropological, uh, that means it, it was only man-based. So basically, it, it covered the entire world, but it covered all the men in the world, all the people in the world. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So it didn't cover the entire surface of the earth. It just in, it, uh, covered an area that was occupied by, by human beings. Well, that's an interesting take on it. I, I hadn't heard that before. Um, before reading your book, Father. I have a question, though, and we've talked in the past a couple times about how the church um, doesn't necessarily wade into uh, scientific or historical matters uh, that, doesn't, that, that don't directly pertain to the church and to faith and morals. Why did the church and these writers in the, in the past 100, 150 years, why did they feel the need to uh, weigh in on this topic? Why was it that this topic uh, was seen as something that was important to clarify the, the popes recognized that the science was making true progress on the one hand, and on the other hand, people's faith might be shaken um, in the inerrancy of the Bible if they did not clarify what the Bible was teaching and what the Bible was not teaching. So what the church did not want to do um, on, on the one hand is, is have people uh, weaken their faith, and on the other hand, they did not want to put the Bible in opposition to reason. So they were, as I say, they were saying that, that they were recognizing that science was making legitimate progress and discovering things. So they didn't want people to get the idea that the Bible was teaching things that were contradicting these findings of science. And they, they realized that a geographically universal flood would, would be impossible with the earth as we know it and with the bi- biological life as we know it. I mean, just, just to get 
that much water to cover all the mountains, and including Everest, is is uh, impossible. There's there's not that much water. Plus the the amount of pressure um, in the atmosphere that would cause by the cloud mass um, to have that much water would destroy absolutely everything. It would be impossible. We have to have a different universe, a different Earth, uh, a different type of biological life. So if I can ask, Father, when when we hear people make these these kinds of uh, questions or observations about how God wouldn't have uh, gone against his own laws or that maybe it would have been impossible um, for all of the clouds to be raining all of the time and it would have destroyed the earth and, and it basically it's physically impossible, like you said. Uh, some, some critics to that statement, Father, might say, well, it's God. Nothing's impossible. <laughs> um, but what you're basically saying is that God would not have set up these laws, these laws of nature, when he created the heavens, the earth, and, and all the rules of physics and nature. He would not have just created all these laws and then, and then dismissed them. He is going to be following them. And, and that's what you mean when you say, in a sense, that it would have been impossible for this to happen. Yeah, this is the, the whole crux of the question. I, I would say that the Protestant fundamentalists would invoke a different laws before the flood and, and after the flood. They would effectively say that, that God changed the laws, the physical laws uh, of the universe. Let's just say the church does not want to do that. One reason is, is that destroys science because it makes it impossible to go back in time. If, if the laws of nature were different in the past than they are now, then I can't use the laws of nature as I see them now and make inferences about what happened in the past. So all historical sciences would be bunk. Um, and we would have to tell people, you know, don't do historical science because because the Bible says, you know, that the flood happened in this way. And that means that the laws of nature had to be different back then. Um, that would that would uh, cause a huge problem for, for the sciences. It would, it would pit religion against science. But it also would would indicate, as you as you say, a God who's not consistent, a God who's not following his own laws. The, the, the fathers of the church and the, the great medieval theologians always said that there's two ways to learn about God. One is from the book of nature and the other is from the book of Revelation, sacred scripture. So both of them come from God and both of them have to be respected. So these people who say you're putting science above the Bible, no, it, it's, it's exactly as you say, we're, we're respecting God by observing what God has done in nature and saying that we have a consistent God who honors his own his own physical laws. So he's not going to radically change the laws of the universe and and then make it impossible for us to learn from his book of nature as a result. Um, he wants us to learn from the book of nature. He wants us to do science. Um, it teaches us about the, the glory of God. I mean, I, I personally find the things that they find in science um, to contribute all the more to to my admiration for uh, God's wisdom, uh, God's beauty, and, and God's goodness. For me to have to throw all that out and say God is just sort of a, a magician who who changes things day to day or, or periodically, I, I think that's that's a very different conception of God that that's not very healthy. Well, and, and to me, Father, it, it almost and I don't know if this is uh, quite correct, but it, it almost seems. Uh, like it's better to me, uh, or or shows God God's omnipotence even more 
that he is setting up these rules and he is still following them. Um, they're his rules. He can break them. He, he could just make a miracle and he could have just covered the globe with water and still made it survive. Uh, but instead what he did is he did magnificent, wonderful, you know, miraculous things while still following the rules of nature and that he himself wrote. And to me, that shows his power even more, I guess. Yes, it, it is. And, and the reason is because there, it makes there to be something intelligible for human minds to understand and what God does. And this is the fundamentally different perspective that we as Catholics have about faith and Protestants have. For, for Protestants, faith is just something you believe without being able to understand anything. Uh, but for us, we, we as Catholics, we believe that, that there is something intelligible in the faith, and God wants us to understand that, um, including in, in the, the supernatural mysteries, like, like the Trinity, that it's a mystery, but there's something intelligible there. And if I understand to a certain degree how the Trinity can be reconciled with reason, saying that there's three persons in one nature, well, then that's going to help me admire God all the more. And that's one of the reasons why God established a, a church to precisely give to, to all human beings the proper balance on these questions. The church has the right concept of, of God. She knows who, who God is. And so um, she is able to respect both faith and reason, both of which are given to us by God and therefore get us to to the right destination, to, to our eternal salvation right. with, the, with the right God, with the right our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and so on. Uh, it's a beautiful way of looking at it, Father. And, you know, when we hear the stories of the Old Testament, when we hear about uh, God's, you know, more physical presence, physical hand in what was going on, well, it, it's not ending now. Uh, it may not be quite as overt, but but uh, he is still present and he is still acting in our lives, and, and it's a beautiful thing to meditate on. Well, thanks for answering that again, Father. And now let's move on to our next question. And, and we are doing something new where we have a phone number where you can call in and leave a voicemail with a question for Father. That phone number is 724-252-8426. It's 724-252-8426. So let's turn to Rachel from Oklahoma who has a question on abortion. Hi, Father. My name is Rachel, and I'm from St. Michael's Chapel in Oklahoma City. Abortion has been around for centuries, but with it being such a quote-unquote, hot topic in our society today, and continuing with the theme of science, I was curious, has the church always taught that life began at conception, or is this something that she has looked to science in order to determine? Thank you for your time, and God bless. That's a great question from, from Rachel. You know, it's true that abortion has, has always been around, and I, I just have to emphasize that really no matter what position you take on when life begins, when human life begins, uh, abortion is wrong no matter what. So if um, we held with some scholastic theologians that, that there's a progression of souls where basically you start off as a plant, then you move to an animal, then you move to a human being, right. um, and, and you did an abortion at the plant stage or the animal stage, um, it would still be a mortal sin. It would still be very offensive to God because of the fact that God has ordained this this order where wherein this is to be the way um, which human beings would come into this world. And you, you don't frustrate the processes of God. You, you don't take over that process and do what you want with it. So no matter what, abortion is, is wrong. But on the other hand, it's true that the church has never decided magisterially when the question of when human life begins. I don't know if she might do that someday, but we have to understand that there's a difference between 
animal life and human life. Um, with the conception of, of a human being, God himself has to intervene to create a human soul, ex nihilo, and he doesn't have to do that with animals. So when we, we're asking ourselves, in other words, when does God infuse the soul into a human being? And because it's a question of creation, um, because God can do whatever he wants with, with his creation ex nihilo, and we can't detect that activity, we can't see something sort of physical as such. You can't measure creation. You can't say, oh, well, creation just took place. Uh, it's something that's beyond the scope of science by, by definition. It's not a process. It just happens instantaneously. But we can get clues from observing nature as to when um, God infuses the soul. And this is by looking at the matter. So we, we don't know on the side of the form of the human being, the side of the soul, when that happens. But we can see what, what happens to the matter and detect from that to get certain clues as to when God might be infusing the soul. This was the reason why, why St. Thomas famously thought that God might be infusing the soul later. Uh, St. Thomas understood that in material things, uh, the material things around us, that they have to have a certain disposition or a certain readiness. Uh, matter has to have a certain readiness to be able to receive something into it. Like if you have an, an I-beam of steel, uh, that steel would have to be have a certain softness to be able to receive a nail into it. But because it's so hard, it can't receive a nail. Um, you can't hammer a nail into, a, into an I-beam uh, because it's too hard. Well, similarly with other material things, you, you've got to, for instance, dispose matter. Uh, a chicken has to dispose the matter of an egg uh, so that it can become another chicken. Um, you can't just take any matter and make a chicken out of it. I can't take grass and, and uh, you know, wood chips and put them in a bowl and it's going to turn into a chicken. Uh, it has to be the right type of matter. So St. Thomas just thought that there might be this progression of souls to where you start off with, with a, a basically a matter that's able to receive uh, the form of a plant, then matter that's able to receive the form of an animal. And once you get... Uh, like organs, human organs that start appearing, then uh, the fetus is able to receive uh, the, 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 the human soul into it. And, and there is a lot of emphasis on, on when life begins. I, I remember when I was in high school uh, in, in St. Mary's, Kansas, and I was uh, t talking to one of our priests who was my teacher at the time, my, my senior year, I said, you know, when, when does conception begin? And, and he said, well, whenever the, whenever the body, whenever the fetus is ready to accept it, uh, but at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really matter because he said you, you must err on the side of earlier rather than later always. Now, it, it's a good question to ask. Um, and Rachel had a great point in, in, in asking it because it does help us understand better the horrors of abortion. Um, but at the end of the day, no offense, Rachel, but uh, it, it doesn't really matter because whether it's abortion or, or contraception or anything that frustrates the process that, that God has given us, it, it's still wrong. Yeah, yes, and it is. But um, at the same time, you know, this is one of those areas. It sort of ties in with our first question. This is one of those areas where um, science has made huge progress. And we should definitely advocate um, the position of the beginning of human life at the moment of conception uh, because there are such solid scientific arguments today for that fact. We know today um, something that, that St. Thomas had no idea about, and that is that each of us have a genetic code 
uh, DNA, and yeah. that that genetic code is present from the very first moment the genetic material combines, and you have the zygote cell, you have there that specific individual information that uniquely identifies the human being, and that same information is present from, from that moment until the, the death of, of the person. So, you know, why would we think that the soul was not infused at that moment? It would, it would seem to go against the wisdom of God for him to not infuse the, the uh, human soul at that moment when we know that the matter is ready to, it's, it's individuated, it's specified, it uniquely identifies a human being. So in that sense, it's definitely ready uh, to receive the human soul. Wow. You, you know, Father, I, I'm sitting here just smiling, listening to your answer. Uh, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about in, in the flood with God following, quote unquote, following his own rules. Um, far from far from just, you know, m magic. Uh, again, God is following his own rules. He's, he's following the rules of his own creation uh, with the DNA like, like you talked about and, and, and how beautiful it is and how perfectly well designed it is. It really strengthens our faith. That's exactly right, you know, and if we accept, we willingly accept the science on DNA today as, as Catholics, why would we not willingly sure. accept other proven science that has solid empirical evidence behind it? We shouldn't reject it, and instead we should find, as in this case, how it redounds all the more to the, the honor and glory of God. So um, what we know about DNA is is uh, today is much more fascinating than, than thinking that, that human beings start off as some sort of blob of uh, strawberry jello or something you know <laughs> right <laughs> it's just this amorphous blob of, of stuff we now know the just the incredible intricacy to which god has designed human life but this doesn't just apply to human life it's in fact all living things work on the cell which works on dna uh, dna is the language for all living things that we know of. And, and this is um, utterly remarkable and fascinating, especially when we, when we start to study the, the code, how DNA is coded, how it's interpreted, how it's, it's spliced and replicated, and how it builds all the, uh, it's used to build all of the, the molecular machines in the cell. These sorts of things, I find it absolutely fascinating, and it does not impinge upon our faith in, in any way. And so we should embrace these, these new scientific discoveries and use them against the atheists, use them against liberals who want to advocate abortion and, and, and other uh, nefarious purposes. Amen. <laughs> I I was talking with uh, Dr. Rao a, a couple podcasts ago, and we were talking about the recent uh, abortion law, the late-term abortion law in New York, uh, and and if by some of these scientific uh, understandings of of how this all works, we as Catholics are able to better understand uh, what's going on, uh, then we can we can argue uh, on a scientific level. Um, the, the horrors of abortion and hopefully completely eradicate it. Absolutely. You know, people listen to scientific arguments today. They should listen to philosophical arguments. They just don't listen to them. And, and we have to, to deal with that. So um, we should bring forward the scientific argument uh, when possible against uh, abortion because that's most likely to convince them. Well, thank you, Father, for, for going into these questions in such great detail. Um, we only had two questions this week, um, but they were, uh, we felt, big enough uh, to warrant 
um, you know, just having a whole podcast on those two. Uh, and if you have questions for Father, again, you're welcome to send them in via our contact form on sspx.org, or you can message them via our Facebook page, or you can call in and leave a voicemail like Rachel did at 724-252-8426. Well, Father Robinson, thanks again. Thanks for always being here for us and providing guidance, and I hope we will talk with you again very soon. It's been a pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me.